You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge the Yaluk et Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, um, which means people of the river camp and is connected with the coastal land at the head of Port Phillip Bay, extending from the Werribee River to Maud Yaluk. The Yaluk et Willem are part of the Boonwurrung, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to their elders past, present, and to the future. Um, this is the third edition of Black Architecture, I think, this year, uh, this, or this series. Um, and we're talking about deep listening and how that relates to, to architecture. We've got three uh, guest speakers here. So to start off, I'll just get the, you guys to give a little intro and tell everyone a bit about yourself. Um, hi, everybody. My name's Maddie Miller. I'm a Darug woman, so I'm a traditional owner of the uh, Western Sydney region. Uh, I'm, an, I'm not an architect. I'm an archaeologist. Um, and I, uh, I guess, have worked at Heritage Victoria for the past seven years. I recently went to the UNESCO World Heritage Meeting and got to see Budge Bim put on the World Heritage List, which is very exciting, um, which is a Gunditjmara aquaculture site. And if you haven't been, you have to go. It is the most incredible place. Um, I am the co-chair of the Indigenous Advisory Group to the Clean Air and Urban Landscapes Hub, which is a research hub of the um, National Environmental Program, uh, which is really looks at kind of how does nature work in urban spaces. Yeah. Hello, my name is Maya Ward. I am of mixed European heritage, about five or six generations in this Yarra River country. I think I've been invited here because of my great love for Birarang, the Yarra River. Back in 2003, I walked the length of Birarang from the sea to the source, a three-week pilgrimage, camping every night on the river. And it was the best experience of my life. It was utterly rearranging. It was only three weeks, yet it was enough to give me a tiny, tiny glimpse into a completely different way of knowing. And at the time, I was working at a place called Ceres Community Environment Park, and I was working alongside Wurundjeri educators and I had been doing so quite closely for quite a number of years. We'd been working on retelling of dreaming stories into the context we now found ourselves. Ceres is a, is an, uh, is a site um, that was an old tip. Uh, it was a quarry first, Wurundjeri land, that had been dug up, turned into a rubbish tip then covered over and then given to the community and the community just told, well, you can do what you like with this, this empty place. And um, the community set about making a, an extraordinary, an extraordinary site of uh, a land for wildlife site, an organic farm, all sorts of community projects and the very first Wurundjeri education program 
in Melbourne. And um, anyway, that the meaning-making that we developed there as a community profoundly influenced me when I walked the Yarra. And so um, it became a long unravelling for, for me to understand that experience. And that's quite enough for an introduction. I'll get back to that. Thank you. Hi there. Um, my name's Louis. Uh, I'm a Jugan man from West Kimberley, um, which so-called Broome resides on my, my country, my ancestral lands, and goes up to Willie Creek and, and down to Thangu. Um, I arrived, I was born off country in uh, Gadigal lands in Sydney and then came down this way, um, passed through Ngunnawal and Yambri country um, on the way here to Kulin Nation. Um, and still, you know, still here to this day. Um, I think, yeah, I've I've kind of gone gone on a journey, um, and still studying, starting my masters this year in in architecture at RMIT, um, and have been gaining practice, I guess, professional practice over the past year at at Studio Bright as a student architect, but all the while still maintaining my my voice as as a sovereign man, um, and you know these. Uh, these opportunities are um, is, um, an, a Jugan sovereign man rather than me as a, an architect. Yeah. I didn't know you were from the West Kimberley. I've got a lot of strong ties up there, so it's good to know. Um, I'm also, my name's Jack. I'm from Western Australia. I've got Noongar heritage. Um, and I've just literally got off a plane from there about an hour ago, so um, yeah, cut us some slack tonight. Um, <laughs> So we're talking about deep listening, which is a term that's used, uh, I mean, it's sort of bandied around a lot with sort of different interpretations of it um, and is kind of a bit maybe at first hard to see how that relates to architecture. Um, so I just thought on top of the introduction, we'll just see if, um, just tell us your interpretation of deep listening or understanding of what, of what that is. Um, from either from an indigenous perspective, if you've sort of got any knowledge of, of that, how it's used traditionally, what, what it means there, or just, or in a, in any other context. All right. <laughs> um, so I guess deep listening has many sort of meanings to me. And when I first kind of saw this topic and thought about this topic, I really just thought of listening to country. Um, and the stories that it has to tell. I think um, we make a lot of mistakes in not listening to what country wants, what it needs, what it's telling us. There's good places and there's bad places. There's women's places and men's places and places to be born and places to die. And that the country tells you that. It, you listen and, and it tells you. And so to me, that's, that's part of deep listening. And if you've been in a place for a long time, whether it's in Australia or somewhere else, you understand the rhythms of it. Something, um, my mum is non-Indigenous, but has lived in a little town called King Lake for, I don't know, 30 years. Um, and one thing is she has a relationship with the magpies. She raises magpies, she's friends with magpies. Um, 
she's the magpie lady. Um, <laughs> and she knows what they sound like. She can be like, oh yeah, that's what they want. And so what I did as a teenager was learn to understand the magpies too because they would tell me when mum's coming back to the house. Um, and that, that, is, that is listening to country. It talks to you. Might have been wanting me to get off the internet, but <laughs> that is to me what deep listening is. It's, it's understanding patterns and it's taking the time. It takes time to learn to listen to country and I think it takes time to learn to listen to each other. Um, and so that's really what deep listening is to me. I recently finished a PhD where I had um, a great time because I had the chance to explore Miriam Rose Ungama's uh, Dadiri, deep listening, and set that alongside something from my European tradition, which was uh, Goethe's um, pr practice of um, also deep listening, not usually called that, usually called um, sort of active imagination. But it's something, the way that these two elders of their cultures describe the process of getting into deep connection with the more than human world was pretty much identical. And so my practice for my PhD was to spend time with these methods and to get a sense of something, uh, something really that I hadn't accessed exactly as you say it took me a great deal of time a great deal of surrender and a great deal of willingness to be transformed by what I heard um, so it was a wonderful experience and I I wrote a little bit about it years and years ago when I walked the Yarra because it was so because it was that immersion of being beside the river and it, it took about two years to prepare for this journey because there was no path all the way along the river and we had to get permission from over 300 landowners. We had to find places to camp. It was a huge mission to open up this path that for at least 40,000 years had been a major cultural pathway um, according to my Wurundjeri teacher Ian Hunter, the major song line of this, of, of his country. Anyway, so I wrote this a little bit. Speak about this now. <laughs> I'm wary of taking up too much no, time, no, so no, no, no. kick me in the ribs <laughs> if, you, if you need to. So this was when we, so we'd been walking for about two weeks by now and we'd had sort of photocopies of the Melways. This was before mobile phones were really in everyone's pockets. We travelled without a mobile phone. It was very nice. Um, so we had photocopies of the Melways and they were, our, they were our guides for where we were going. And there was a day when we lost our maps. And then we realised actually we had to go off the Yarra and go on a detour down the Little Yarra and we realised we hadn't asked for permission. And suddenly there we were. We had no map, no permission. I knew where we had to go to. But it was a really interesting moment psychologically after all this time of walking and walking through country. So here's what I wrote. No land is innately fenced. It didn't happen all at once, but in England, over 800 years or so, the land was shut up into parcels. Enclosure, as the practice was called, divided land with fences, ditches or hedges. As the Industrial Revolution powered up in the late 1700s, 
this slicing was vigorously encouraged and legalised by the governments of the time. Lords and landowners were quick to take economic advantage. There was more money to be made in fattening sheep for wool than the traditional use of peasants growing subsistence crops. Those who resisted the forced enclosure of the land their family had lived upon for generations were branded criminals. Some were sent to Australia as convicts. With no land on which to grow their food, many thousands of farmers faced the stark choice of either starvation in the country or gruelling work in the mines or the mills or factories of the industrial towns. In Scotland, the dispossession of people from land was even more dramatic. They were called the clearances, the forced removal, sometimes by the army, of thousands of furious Scots in order to set up vast sheep runs. To this day, half of Scotland is owned by 0.01% of the population. And many of the newly landless Scots boarded the ships for Australia, including some of my ancestors. The farmers, predominantly illiterate in written matters, were probably highly literate in their understanding and connection to the land. Leaving the land, what of their culture was irrevocably lost? Perhaps this culture was in, in part supplanted by a culture of class anger. Marx, working on the Communist Manifesto in London in the 1850s, drew on the history of the enclosures of the commons to demonstrate the development of capitalism and its effect on the powerless. Yet he addressed the new working class of the industrial age, not the peasants and their land-based traditions and culture. The energising comradeship of communism with its timely call for justice and equality offered an alternative to urban Christianity and quickly gathered adherents all over the industrialised world. It believed heroically, perhaps, in the workers and ideals. But did Marxism believe in a wider net that held the people? Did Marx believe in the great holding given us by the arms of the world? Some of the sources I scoured suggested that enclosure marked a revolutionary change in how the world was previously viewed. That prior to enclosure, the peasant farmers had no concept of land ownership. The ruling class most certainly did. They promoted the notion that the traditional peasant way, ways of life were primitive and the people lazy, irresponsible and unproductive. The landlords justified the clearances as a necessary evil to civilise and improve their estates and the peasants. Back in Yarra River country, where squatters, including ex-convicts and landless Scottish and English migrants, came in with their hard-won knowledge of land ownership. They claimed this land. The sheep their sheep wandered over the unfenced land, unfenced land and ate out the Wurundjeri staple food crop, the Murnong daisy tubers. The records suggest that most settlers considered the traditional Aboriginal ways of life as primitive and the tribal people as lazy, with no notion of responsibility and unable to produce anything of value. These pronouncements disguise, fairly obviously, a forgetting. This forgetting was necessary if they were to take over the lands of others.
I remember listening to a voice on tape of an Irish storyteller and historian talking about the Celts. He spoke about the Celtic knowledge of eternal time, a magical world alongside this one, a realm where time moved differently, a place of indescribable beauty. I wondered whether the realm he described came out of the experience of living deeply connected to land. Was this realm referring to a flowing sense of being part of all life? Was this knowledge foundational, I imagine, to a land-based culture lost during industrialization when the emphasis shifted to the machine? The story goes on, but I've taken up plenty of time. That's beautiful. Thank you. I mean, really what I was pointing to, I think, with my research in my PhD was why did I get such a strong sense when I walked the Ara of the absolute truth and depth of Indigenous culture when I wasn't an Indigenous person? And it didn't take me too long to realise that it wasn't that far back that every single person was an Indigenous person and colonisation, industrialisation have utterly and completely transformed the ways that we feel, think and know and listen. And, but it's not that far back and it is our he common heritage and if we're willing to do the work and listen to knowledge holders and listen to land, there's an invitation waiting for us. Um, yeah, I guess one thing from there that, that really struck me is this forgetfulness and, and that's something that is what I find the antithesis of deep listening is this, this cult of forgetfulness and how um, how the colonial project and the regime in which we are all in, um, we, we, we practice this forgetfulness, whether it's subconscious or not. Um, and in order to... Um, in order to deny that or counter that, um, we, we need to go through that process of deep, deep listening. Deep listening is a process of respect. Um, it's been a process in which we are thoughtful people, we are mindful people, we are people that are sincere, people that, um, people that are self-reflexive in terms of the spaces that we, in, we are in, and we are, you know, we are visitors as well. That's one thing that, you know, when, when, when you come from Noongar country over here, you're a visitor, likewise. And I have, to, I have to, with that cultural protocol, I have to go through the same things as um, a visitor may, may have to do. And that's, that's having an awareness as a visitor. And that goes for every single person here is having an awareness um, of where they are, where they come from, where they are going, 
um, and what what that practice is is a is a is a thing that um, takes time in terms of actually being critically self-aware and self-reflective of what is your practice of being a visitor. I think deep listening is, in terms of, um, you know, what these guys have said about listening to country is definitely a thing that we all need to do um, and be, be more symbiotic as people rather than overriding our... Um, our authority over country, but another thing is just being aware of where you were situated in that, um, and that awareness of, of where one's situated within space will allow for a path um, towards solidarity, towards true true mechanisms in order to work and build relationships with Aboriginal people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I thought I'd just give a little bit of a, more background on what deep listening is for, for me as well, just in case people haven't encountered the term before. Um, and the best, the best version of it that I've heard so far is uh, Uncle Larry Walsh talking about it. Um, because I've, I've when I was doing a bit of research into deep listening a little while ago, I heard some I was doing some reading and people are talking about, um, you know, when you're listening to someone, you know, making sure you look at them and, and nodding and kind of you know nodding along with them to show that you're listening. And it's got nothing to do with that at all. It's like it's not it's the opposite of concentration. It's not you're not sort of focusing and concentrating. It's about softening your senses. It's about sort of opening up you know the scope of your perception as much as possible, and ultimately looking at sort of patterns. You know, you're looking at kind of patterns stepping back and looking at patterns between things that sort of more meta-narratives that are happening all the time as opposed to the kind of constituent elements that make up those patterns. Um, and, yeah, Uncle Larry told me a story once where you... He was talking about listening, listening to cockatoos and the cockatoos would always fly with a vanguard and a rearguard and there'd be, I think, three at the front and three at the back. And by listening, this is when he was out on country, by listening to the sound of the cockatoos, I think when one of them, you know, when it was just the, just the, the vanguard would start to um, make noise, they would know that it was um, an eagle or a, you know, a bird of prey coming to attack. But then when the whole flock started to, started to screech, they knew it meant rain. So it's those little sort of subtle differences and that's what, you know, the more time we spend listening to country, listening to sort of natural patterns. And I think now is a really important time to do that, obviously, because there's a huge amount of change happening in the natural environment. Um, I just wanted to go on what you said as well, Maddie, about listening to country and just because to sort of try and relate it back to architecture in terms of country talking to us. And it's been a relevant point in, um, in the city of Melbourne recently with, with water and how much listening to sort of what water wants to do. Um, and I think we're seeing a shift architecturally a little bit, at least in sort of thought around how we design in response to sort of what water, what water wants to do rather than us trying to, you know, this history that we have of trying to control and sort of direct it and, um, you know, building canals and, you know, it's sort of like the Elizabeth Street, um, which is, we sort of go to every time we have one of these, I think. But the, um, yeah, looking at sort of trying to respond to that. So I was just wanted, wanting to see if you guys had ever encountered or what your experiences, experience was within, within practice or within um, 
you know, your professional lives as, as responding to sort of nature as in responding to country? Um, I just wanted to, in response to your sort of definition of deep listening, there's actually a concept in um, Darug culture, Darug language called Nyara, which is to listen, to think and to feel. And to me, that's, that's deep listening. Mm. It's not about the response. It's about how it permeates. Um, and so I think I can't speak for other indigenous cultures, but definitely in, in Darug culture, um, that's sort of a core principle. <coughs> is um is nyara um and i guess in terms of of that and thinking about water and thinking about landscapes um i guess as an as an archaeologist my job is to is to dig holes um and part of that is uncovering past landscapes so recently next to the queen victoria market um a waterway was uncovered so it was underneath you know, I think it was a pet store or something, I don't know. Um, there, was, there was a river still there. Uh, in, uh, I am a historic archaeologist, so I study um, historic places, but through that and through my research in um, reading journals and things like that is, is understanding what happened to this place so rapidly um, from invasion. So the... The gold rush, for instance, is something that I study a lot. Um, and what that did was um, bring sediments that are a million years old to the surface. And those sediments had to go somewhere. And so our landscapes of our ancestors are covered by sediments millions of years old. And so you dig through those sediments and you get to the pre-invasion landscape. Um, and what those sediments are from ancient waterways. And so it's kind of this um, palimpsest, which is you know, a dicky archaeology term, um, <laughs> of, of, of movement of soil and water through the landscape. And you see altered waterways, um, waterways that were altered for the gold rush of, of pushing back to where they want to be. You can't stop nature. Um, it will it will make its way, and so I think thinking about the landscape as maybe not destroyed but just obscured, it's still there. Our country is still there, it's just a, under some older stuff. Um, is is really interesting, and so for me, um, you know, I can touch things that were made sixty thousand years ago, um, and that's really incredible. Um, and so, yeah, so I guess in terms of, of understanding that landscape and, and realising what is there, it's really we've only just sort of come to terms with that, come to terms with the, the layers of this place. In other, other archaeologists, perhaps in, in places like Syria or the Middle East, um, where they work on these tell sites where you dig through, you know, you're in the Crusades and then you're here and you're here and you're here. Um, People don't think of, of archaeology or heritage in Australia as having layers of having a time depth. They just see it as kind of one thing. Um, but I think we are really coming to terms with that sort of depth of time. Um, and part of that is really understanding what the landscape is telling us. The Mungo story is a wonderful example of that, isn't it? Just how incredibly ancient mm. those... People, um, my um, work background is in placemaking, urban design, and um, 
it was a really wonderful experience to be given permission to come up with conceptual design work that was grounded in my own deep listening practice. And so to be able to present back to you know, the developers and the architects um, sort of conceptual, a conceptual uh, framework of, of a deep listening response. So taking time to be out on country and to feel it and to really um, try and find a way to present to these people who had a, a monetary bottom, bottom line to say, well, how do you, how you, this is a way that you could honour the, um, the ancient layers here, the, the human and more than human, honouring the stone, honouring the weather, honouring the, the plants and the animals. Um, so that, that whole um, framework of placemaking is, um, is quite a useful new branch, new, it's coalescing different elements of design into and putting place at the forefront and potentially allowing more agency for place. Um, and yes, I really had some great experiences with some clients who, who would, you know, be brought to tears when they would read these sort of conceptual designs because they suddenly realised that they, it was okay to feel their love of a place and also to feel the grief of changing this beautiful, maybe greenfield site into a development site. So we would say, how are you going to honour the fact that you're, you're wiping away these layers of history and to give some sort of recognition for that loss? Because we all know it's been lost. So if you, if you allow space for that loss, you're giving, you're enabling soul making, if that makes sense. You're, you're giving some soulfulness into a practice that I think in Australian culture, there's an enormous amount of shame for the destruction of indigenous lifeways and uh, indigenous environments. And I think there really is a key to acknowledging shame, to open that space for transformation and open that space for deep listening. If we try and pretend that we don't have any grief about turning a greenfield space into a building, then we're not allowing our full... You know, as Uncle Larry said, you know, it's the big picture of our whole body, our animal body is sad about this, but we're so controlled our animal selves are so controlled that we forget about that grief. And, um, but I have found there is a space for that in the design world if you're, if you're willing to put it forward. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah I, get <coughs> I guess, you know, we are, we are taught within, um, within education and, and within... I guess like Western methodology to to see to see architecture as this thing where you can you can place this object on a piece of land and look at site as this 
singular um, single layer thing where the where country is an ever um, a, a, a multi-layered multi-diverse secular notion um, where if you take one thing out of, of that sacred place then a lot of the time it all caves in whether it's one species of animal whether it's one species of plant and I think when when looking at when looking at site from an from an architectural point of view um, we have to we have to read place as something that isn't isn't singular isn't um, isn't a commodity where where there's this hegemonic view of seeing landscape as landscape where landscape is 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 derived from us being other or land as being other and us being the dominant um, benefactor of land where where country is us enveloped within that so in terms of deep listening I in terms of practice I guess I haven't really had much opportunity um, within my own practice of of that process of deep listening but um, I think it's I think it's being knowing that you're not you're not the actual um, there's there's a lot more at play than just what your ambitions are and your agendas within a project um, and that that you've 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 got to acknowledge all the different elements at play um, yeah I get it yeah I, I think it's kind of like um, just having a conversation with another person you know you don't have a conversation with another person and not you know, it's not it should be on equal footing. You want to listen to what they're saying. You don't dominate right. it. You don't sort of push your kind of agenda over the top of mm. someone else's. And I think that develop, you know, that as a kind of microcosm, as a as a you know, since what you were saying about respect and um, you know, these kind of like this, these words that we use to generally talk about other people is kind of now spreading out to sort of begin to talk about um, yeah, country and and nature and, and the environment that we that we respond to. Um, architecture. Well, I think it, it really stems off. Um, it stems off the settler colonial project and how we have been conditioned into believing that land is purely a means of commodifying. You know, that's in terms of where we all come from and where we all, where our privilege lies. A lot of the time, it all stems to land, land theft, land ownership. And a lot of people can't come to terms with that. And that, that complicity is still taking place. Despite what we're thinking up here, we're still conducting the same actions that were conducted generations ago. And that, that, that settler violence that's occurring, you know, but how, how, how are we going to, you know, we see what, what's happening right now. That's something that was going to inevitably happen and will still continue to happen if we don't actually switch our thinking, switch this Western methodology of seeing land as a commodity and actually how can we, how can we heal, how can we heal the scars of the land, how can we work with the land and in that is actually 
listening to the land and the rightful owners of that land. Yeah, I think we, we sort of champion a kind of brutal pragmatism often coming from that kind of, the sort of, I guess, the European sort of tradition and that sort of subtler, deeper, the, you know, the deep listening practices are um, often kind of just eradicated quite quickly. Um, I think we've got another event happening after this, so 10 minutes, questions? Yeah, I might just um, ask the crowd if there are any questions. There's a floating mic somewhere. Well, maybe I can give it to you after I ask my question. Thank you very much for the talk today. It's been really good. Um, I suppose if we look across the city skyline, we're clearly now in a swamp, and that was a swamp before 1788, and famously Blue Lake, um, Dudley Flats across the other side of the skyline. Um, I suppose the, the geography of this part of what we call Melbourne is clearly low-lying marshland, yet we, in the last 20 years, have just haven't stopped building skyscrapers for people to live in that aren't very well built. Who, whose fault is that? That's, that's my, probably my first question. Um, the second question is, how do we stop it? I suppose, as a, while you're thinking about that, there's the coda of this institutional memory, uh, because we're talking about um, sophisticated planning, um, and very big projects, billion-dollar projects. Um, who's, whose fault is it that the Westgate Tunnel is currently stopped because there's asbestos being found there? Now, any of us in the room would say, well, this site here was used as a dump for 200 years. Um, not properly so, but it was that was used as a dump for the whole of Melbourne. Um, it's not shocking that you'd find that that site is contaminated as this whole area is, um, through occupancy. Um, whose fault is that was forgotten? How do we stop it? That's a very big question. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure any of us are too equipped to answer that. Um, I mean, it's a PPP, so the government's responsible. An answer, but um, yeah, I don't know, Maddie. Um, so I've been, I've had my head in 1851, 1852 for the past couple of weeks. <laughs> so that's where I'm laying blame. Um, well, that's when it really started to... That, that is when they that started. Sort of 30 or 40 years yeah. later, it really started to ramp up, formally speaking, yeah. Yeah. So in that time, that's when the suburbs of, of Collingwood and Richmond... And, I mean, we've all been there. Looks like a bit of a hipster bunch. So we know what it's like. It is tight houses. It's tight streets. There's no trees. There's nothing there. And that's what was there in, in 1851. Tiny, very expensive houses, like... A house in Richmond was more than a giant house in London for a one-bedroom little shithole. Um, Still is, he said. <laughs> Actually, what I said was, if Richmond in uh, 1857, it's all swamp. So uh, that's where I'm getting to. <laughs> Let me get there. Um, and so you, the descriptions of the streets of these places are just mud so thick you can't walk through it. Mud so thick that horses and cows were drowning in the mud. Imagine that. The streets of Melbourne were not paved, were knee-deep mud. There was water pouring down Elizabeth Street, down Swanston Street. And so that's 
the legacy. That's where they chose to build and that's what they chose to do is the tens of thousands of people coming through every month on their way to the gold fields were living in Melbourne on or going off to make their fortune and drink it away. They were living in these tiny houses in this tiny hellhole, muddy place. And so that is the legacy of what we have is this greedy, inefficient place um, and so that's kind of where I would lay the blame is the foundations of our city um, wanting just monumentally fucked up. So we've got Port Melbourne, of course we need to mention that, Melbourne, Richmond, uh, we've got uh, Collingwood and uh, North Melbourne. It sounds like the AFL has something to answer for their <laughs> footscray obviously. But look, th- so what next? So that, it's fair enough blaming or, or raising an issue but what next? How do we solve this problem? Well, I'm in 1851 still, so yes, don't talk to me. Archaeology brings all the answers, so that's... <laughs> Which problem are we talking about? The well, skyscrapers, the, the Westgate Tunnel? The inst- institutional memory being lost, particularly of this swampland. I mean, that's where we're focusing on. Could I respond? I do feel like if we just listen to what Gaia, this planet, is trying to say, we'll figure it out. Yes, not Matthew we Guy. are being told to change <laughs> our behaviour in no uncertain terms. Climate change is a very clear directive and, um, you know, those skyscrapers will be, their foundations will be ruined by rising waters quite soon, mm. it seems. Um, the, come up, the comeuppance will come and um, unless we do some serious listening to attune ourselves to what this earth is seeking to share. Great, thanks very much. Yeah, I've just got a, a quick question. I was interested in this idea of deep listening, but also what happens when you've got people listening. And I think uh, architects, uh, developers, placemakers, archaeologists, people in the built environment underestimate the access to power they have. They don't always have power, but they have access to power. And there's often opportunity in these consultant meetings to speak back to people once you've got them listening. So I'm interested in, and maybe Maddie in particular, because you're working in government as well, and just when you've got 20 people sitting at a table that are twice your age often, like how are ways that you kind of transform the conversation when you have people sitting there and listening? Like what are some of the things that you can do? Yeah. To put pressure <laughs> Great on question. Yeah. <laughs> I guess um, where I come from is almost at a position of power. We have legislation and that talks to setting and it talks to view line and it talks to place. And we're sitting, you know, just near the Shrine of Remembrance, which is a heritage place, which has protection for its view lines. It, it has protection for its place. I have worked recently in World Heritage and we talk about, well, what is the place that has the universal, outstanding universal value? So what is the important place? But also what is around it that makes it important and how do we protect that? But we don't, we only do that for these, you know, I guess criteria that we've made up as a society, as a Anglo-dominated society, we've made up this, this is our criteria of what's important. Um, and that's what we protect. What we do haven't done is thought about place as a whole, thought about all of places being important, thought about the way in which systems connect. I mean, 
Like, what's going on with the water ta table in Melbourne Metro? Like, what's going on there? What's going on with our, you know, what, what does that mean for our city? Is it going to rise? Um, and so I think we don't have, we've got all these sort of legislative mechanisms for certain little bits of the pie, but there's not really one thing that's overlooking everything. And when you get to the table, what they're looking at is ways to pervert the legislation, ways to twist it to get what they want in the end. And so you get this kind of really weird outcome, which isn't what you intended in the first place. And so you can, you do meet good people and there are good people who are doing good work, but that's not everybody. I actually wanted to thank the four of you because deep listening hasn't been part of my vocabulary. And um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about these pavilions. Uh, my name is Naomi Milgram and this is my foundation that's put this together. And I really appreciate what you've been talking about tonight because deep listening for me is a new context and your reading uh, was excellent. Thank you so much. It was really very heartfelt and I really did enjoy it. One of the things that frustrates me most is the fact that the things that you're talking about people should be listening to. And it goes back to your initial question, how do we influence? And how can, and one of the ways that I'm trying to influence is by doing this pavilion and providing access for everybody and for every discussion to be held here. But I do think the things that you have to say are extremely important. And But how do we find a way, goes back again to what you said, because we're always going to end up with a Matthew Guy or various other people who aren't listening. But how do we influence? Do you have any ways, and Sarah as well for you, um, do we have any ways that we can influence further? Has anybody got any thinking around that? Um by using privilege in order to allow space for Aboriginal voice, maybe. I think that's in terms of how uh, how you can influ I, I don't know if I like the word influence, to be honest. I, I, I feel as though it's... Um, I, I, I purely think that in terms of deep listening, what what is the in terms of everyone that's here right now, what has made them come along to learn about deep listening? I think it's not about influence, but I think it's about justice. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's using it's using your it's using your networks in order to in order to use your practice of deep listening to actually impact to actually make change. It's actually about um, I I I, f I feel as though deep listening is more of an introspective thing um, but in terms of actually making people be held to an account that's th that's something other than deep listening can i answer this question go, Sorry, go for it yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> i think uh 
one, I agree, deep listening is an internal thing. And part of our responsibility is showing aspects of what that means to people so that they can grab onto. So in that instance, it's about baby steps. It's incremental. It's about going, okay, what can we do for this project where we can listen in this way and it shows people how to do it, which comes to my main point. It's about creating precedence. It's about showing people that it can be done, which means there needs to be brave champions of people going, well, regardless of what policy says or regardless of what is going on, we're going to do this and then we're going to talk about how we did it and we're going to give equal voice to everyone that was involved in this project and talk about how we failed and talk about how we do better next time. I think if you can do all of those things, then ultimately you can speak to every kind of different person who might be listening in the way that they need to be spoken to. There's no singular voice that's going to change everyone's perspective. It has to be a collective. And part of the reason, you know, for example, with Black Architecture, we make sure that we have Indigenous and non-Indigenous speakers on the panel is that sometimes people need to hear a non-Indigenous voice talking about this topic to show that they can be a part of it. And... Um, quite often it's about trying to give it it we do try and privilege the voice obviously you've set this up and it's a beautiful platform for us because we feel free to privilege the voice of indigenous people to put their voice forward first um and hopefully people someone in the audience will make an actionable takeaway from being here uh so that's that's what we try to do with black architecture through what you try to do with m pavilion and so, like, every single, every single opportunity we have is an opportunity to influence someone. But if you're talking about influence at scale, then it has to be policy, right? It has to be writing policy. And it has to be about things like the Birrarung is now considered a living entity. And so what does that mean? And how does the policy then change how we talk about the river and how, it talk, how we talk about how everything interfaces with the river? And how many people actually know that the, that the river is a living entity in terms of policy? And we, we just don't talk about those things. And then it comes to the media. And I, I don't really know a lot about the media, but all I know is that the media is interested in disaster. It's not really all that interested in positive things that make us change the way we think about the world. Um, and so then the media has a massive part to play. And we're sitting here talking about interconnected systems in terms of nature and a holistic understanding of country and the fact that through the process of listening, you actually develop a connection to country, but actually all these systems that exist within country, even the media, are part of where we are and who we are. And so every single person, no matter what their role is in life, no matter what their profession, no matter what they're chosen to do, can do one little thing that will change something. And we all need to take up that responsibility. So it is personal, back to the original point. It is personal. Because I've had this conversation with my dad over Christmas, side note, um, but talking about uh, what, talking about elders and talking about listening to elders and what that means and all these kind of processes and things. And, you know, my dad's been quite sheltered from the community in Tasmania because the politics are a little bit hard, um, to say the least. Uh, and so he was sort of going, well, I want to I listen to the knowledge holders. I want to listen to the people that know what they're talking about. And I'm, my response is, well, you have to earn that because those people have been listening to country. Those people know what is happening and they're not just going to tell you because what are you going to do with it? Are you going to be responsible with what you're hearing or are you going to commercialise it or are you going to do all of the things that people have done for the last 200 years uh, and claim it as their own? And so, I mean, this is a total side note, but um, you have to be ready for it is the point. And... 
you know, after that conversation with my dad, my dad was like, well, I'm not ready for it because if I heard something that didn't align with the way that I work or the way that I do things, then would I be willing to change? And he was like, well, probably not. And it's like, okay, well, that's the question you have to ask yourself. Are you actually willing to change if you hear something through the process of deep listening about country that you then become connected to? Are you willing to do something about it? And if you're not, then you're not going to achieve anything. If you are, then you'll make some sort of change. So, yes, it's personal. Yeah. I'd love to respond to that because it, it is personal. And how do we change? We change when we're touched in the heart. And this may sound too feminine or too vulnerable, but I feel like my best work in the design world has come when I've really put my heart on the line and shown how much I love a place and how much it has moved me, how much my listening has changed me. That's when I have a hope of actually influencing them on, a, on the profound level. So I actually feel that it's, it's courage, it's emotional courage. And that's something that I think women can um, take the lead in. And um, so, yeah, I feel like there's, um, that's not legislative, that's not about power in a traditional form, but actually elders, like one of my main elders, Bill Nedji from Kakadu area, his, one of his books, A Story About Feeling, Story About Feeling, his, his eldership, the way I read it, comes from his capacity to feel. And to feel is a body thing, it's a total thing, it's a, it's a body connected to country thing. Yeah. It's also very difficult to just convince someone else that what you think is right and what they think isn't and that's why care and empathy and relationships come into it. So you have to work out how do you approach someone who doesn't, you know, a lot of these conversations that we have we're essentially preaching to the converted, everyone comes down because they already agree and they want to, you know, have these conversations mm. and expand on it but how do you get people yeah. to listen who, who don't agree or don't give a shit or have complete apathy and so I think that's where, the, where empathy mm. and relationships come into it and, you know, there's a lot of approaches to that, but, you know, storytelling is a very strong one. I think stories are about, you know, history, uncovering histories, like sad, sad histories, positive histories, you know, dreamtime mythology, un just understanding. Once you sort of, the more you understand about the place that you're in or another group of people, the more you're able to care about it. Um, so, yeah, I think it's like, bit, yeah, bit by bit, I guess. All right, we've got to wrap it up there. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, and thanks to all our fantastic speakers. Cheers, Bella. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.